This is Forum. I'm John Michaels, Public Affairs Radio Director. Going to be talking to Bob Colby, who's all about time. I guess uh, clocks is something that uh, you could say have been for 50 years uh, this last week. Correct. Well, tell us about it. Well, I, <clears throat> there was a time when I came to Sioux Falls, my wife and I. We, uh, I was trying to get into the Sioux Falls teaching system, and the hiring agent for the district was adamant that Sioux Falls School District was becoming inbred because they were getting too many students from uh, Sioux Falls College, Augustana, Briarcliff, Mount Marty, and, and the immediate small smaller schools as well as the university and state and thought that in order to you know get rid of this uh, kind of a inbreeding whatever that uh, he would go to North Dakota and he'd go to Des Moines and he'd go to uh, uh, Black Hills and he'd go down to Omaha uh, even though he forgot that most of the students that were at these universities or colleges were coming from outside outside the area I mean they were they were not local people. They were so they had a different points of view, and they were becoming educated. Well, I uh, did substitute teaching, and when you do such, you're not busy every day, and you want to be doing something with the, the day or days off. So, I started a, an antique and clock repair shop, and as the story goes about Topsy, it just grew. And after and yesterday. The 2nd of June was the 50th anniversary of doing that in the same location. And I'm now at the point where if someone with a big truck and a bank would come in, they could own a clock repair shop. A clock repair shop uh, on Summit Avenue. Uh, Summit Avenue has some history. I believe that used to be where the streetcar used to go by. Correct. Correct. So I'm not too far from, I mean, in fact, I'm in the old part of town and uh, Tom Killian, now deceased, who was a local political and history buff and all that sort of thing, said this particular store was the halfway point between Augustana and downtown. So in the wintertime, kids would stop in, warm up, go downtown, come back from downtown, warm up, and go back to, to, the, to uh, Augustana. The building that I'm in, uh, the best that I could tell was built in the early 1890s and uh, has been was a grocery store up until just before I moved into it so that makes it uh, let's see what is it that's 120 years old or no 130 well it used to be a grocery store yes it was a grocery store several different owners it used to be was the white front for a while it was the ABC which I came to understand was Abraham B. Cross, ABC, um, uh, and then there were Millmans and a few others. I've had people in the course of the years, three different families come in saying that uh, they had relatives who did, who did the uh, ran the grocery store, and they would run it for you know four to six years. And the original grocer was K. N. Anderson. And so you can use city directories to chase backwards. And what I found was that uh, K.N. Anderson, somewhere in the early 1890s, was a bartender. Then after that, he uh, got married, was still a bartender for a year or two. And then all of a sudden, he became 
the head of the grocery store and uh, ran the grocery store for a goodly number of years. And so you have to build a story around it. And that was that uh, when he got married, fine, but his wife probably didn't want a bartender for a husband because that was a kind of a seamy sort of uh, enterprise back in the 1890s. And whatever happened, happened. And she said, you go somewhere else. Or as my wife said when I was doing the work in our basement after dinner, you will do this somewhere else or you will do this somewhere else. Well, something happened because it was a uh, route of the uh, uh, streetcars. The cobblestone and that uh, the load limit on Summit Avenue for people who don't know that live there is higher than most other rural streets. I mean, you know, side streets. Yes, and and the uh, I have been told, though I can't prove it, that the Duluth is and, and right in front of my store there is probably one of the oldest poured concrete streets in Sioux Falls. They have had some interesting things. They uh, one of the side streets they were doing some street work and it was asphalt so they took it up and were going to put some underlayment to base under base on base gravel or whatever well they got down the asphalt was four to six inches thick because of multiple layers then they got down about another eight inches and then they ran into a rock the size of a of a uh, desk uh, they just when they first did that street they just poured the asphalt on top of the ground and went from there. Talking to Bob Colby, Colby Clockworks, one thing that uh, I remember is you were probably the biggest collector of postcards of history of all the small towns around here. And most of them would put a streetcar in the photograph just to make it look like a bigger city. But it was really kind of a, a uh, Photoshop type of thing back then. It, yeah, it was the equivalent of a Photoshop, and the guy that did most of those was C.C. Slack, and he was from Sioux Falls, and he operated here between 1910 and 1914, and find that same streetcar in towns in North Dakota, South Dakota, western Minnesota, northern Nebraska, and uh, I don't know, maybe some of northwest Iowa, but it's always the same streetcar. But then he also put in other things. There would be a fox sitting on top of a building saying this is a foxy town and then he'd have airplanes above the main street and you know that this was a progressive city and now there'd be a couple pigs walking down the street and say we're hog wild about whatever the town name was so yeah he he did a quite a bit of that and he was notorious not at the time but if you collect today he was uh, he should be notorious because most of his views were probably what you would call steals. He would take the other person's Main Street view. He'd lay on this phony fox or airplanes or whatever, and then he'd re-photograph it and then publish it as his own. Although I do have some postcard views that have the car on the Main Street, and it's one of those open cars. It, they were touring cars, but they had a windshield in the front, and there'd be a sign sitting on top of the a hood leaning up against the windshield said if you're wishing to buy postcards see cc slack sioux falls south dakota but you have to have a magnifying glass to see it but he probably used that when he was in town doing the photography just to uh you know get a little advertising so people would know what he was doing 
Well, I can remember penny postcards. I'm that old. But uh, how many postcards do you have? Oh, I've been collecting South Dakota cards for a number of years, and I'm probably in the realm of 20,000, 25,000, and they're South Dakota. I don't, I have bought and do have others, but those outside of the South Dakota, those I would probably part with. But the South Dakota ones, I'm always looking for the small towns and the uh, unusual stuff. And I tell people, I like photos of things that people did but they didn't take a photo of. Uh, I'm still looking for a good set of changing the tire on a car. Today we don't do that, but back when I was younger and had the first vehicle, everybody changed, took the wheel off the car and put the spare tire on or spare wheel and you know, you did that and you if you explained it to some person today, they would what do you mean? How did how did you do this? But if you had two or three pictures, it's easy to understand. Uh, one of my favorites is I bought a postcard from somebody, and they told me about it. It was butchering. You know, home butchering is something that a lot of people did, but nobody hardly does it at all today. And here were three guys, all have heavy coats on, not long, long coats, but, you know, heavy jackets, let's say. You could see little piles of snow. You could see three tripods uh, where they had hogs hanging. In other words, the tripod would be like a small Indian teepee, and the hog was hanging from the hind end, hind leg, and they had haired the hog. They'd scraped the hair off of it. They apparently had already eviscerated it. They were ready to get the splitting done because there was an axe leaning against one of these tripods. They didn't have a saw. They had an axe. Okay. And the one of the guys was fit, kind of half-facing the camera, and he had his hand like he was putting his hand over his heart. Well, that's fine. You know, so I get the card eventually, the postcard. And, okay, there's snow. There's jackets. There's the hogs. But here's a guy putting a half pint back in the top of his bib top overalls. And that just was like icing on the cake because that was it made the story even bigger and better. Well, postcards are kind of the social media of the uh, early last century. Most of the <clears throat> postcards were probably, oh, let's say they were published after 1900, uh, a goodly number from 1905 on, and they were a lot of them done by the local photographer. It could have been a, a photographer. It could have been the person in the drugstore. Or it could have been a hobbyist of the time. And they would take photos of things. And they only produced, you know, they didn't produce uh, gross numbers They produ and didn't produce hundreds. They may have only produced a couple dozen at the max. And they were recording things for friends and relatives and the process you know when we talk about instant the process was such that a person with a camera could go on out take a photo on monday of whatever the thrashing or the plowing or the butchering or whatever was going on and then monday night you'd go back home in the basement probably where it was dark 
and uh, have maybe a little red light downstairs, and then you'd take the film and you'd fix the film, and in uh, you know, so you had a negative. Next day, you'd get up, you'd take the negative, and you'd lay it on top of some light-sensitive paper, and then you'd figure out so you got a pretty good image. You'd take it back down in the basement, and then throw it in your what they called hypo or your fixer. It stopped the light action. You'd do that, and then you'd dry it, and then you could, you know, print it. And they could print out. They had light sensitive. A paper that was postcard printed on the back, but the front was where you you put your uh, image from your negative. Oh, and you wait, get that all dried up, and so Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday, you'd address it, put on your one penny stamp or two penny stamp, and send it off. And you could get it anywhere in the United States. If it was Wednesday morning, they could have it by Saturday. And <clears throat> those were the days when there was twice a day mail delivery. You know, especially in the cities, the bigger towns. And so here was your relatives or your friends off in what would be Schenectady, New York, looking at a photo you would take. And they were doing this on Friday or Saturday, and they were looking at a picture. And this was taken Monday. That was this week. That's almost like instant. Well, now we can look at television and we can watch somebody die in living color instantly because they've been shot on the battlefield. Well, it's times change, but the postcard is a is a, a memento of yesterday. But it's one of those things that I like because a lot of people look at photos, look at images, but they don't see what's there. It's what's behind. Yes. Yeah. Talking to Bob Colby of Colby Clocks, um, Bob, I, I would imagine you probably got postcards of, say, the Lindbergh uh, when he was at Renner Airport in Renner, South Dakota. At Renner? Mm-hmm. Also have him walking down the Capitol steps and pier, which oh. <clears throat> I have never found, <clears throat> excuse me, I've never found anywhere else. I've never even seen anybody that had them to offered because it was interesting for Pierre that same year. Lindbergh was there, and so was um, uh Coolidge, he went when he went out to the hills. He stopped in Pierre. So, I mean, can you imagine Pierre thinking they were the center of the universe because the president stopped and Lindbergh stopped, and they were within a couple months of one another? Yeah, they say he had about ten thousand people at Renner, South Dakota. He had a flock of people, mm-hmm. and the interesting thing is, they told the people who were on the runway, get off the runway so he can land or. If you can't get off the runway, he won't land. But unfortunately, well, they said that because he needed gas, so he was going to land. <laughs> well, those postcards, again, are history. Um, I am used to have model trains, and I, I used to collect things from the Milwaukee Road. I imagine you got pictures of the, of the Milwaukee Road, uh, Hiawatha. We've got, I tend to, <clears throat> I tend to poop out on my, collecting about the time there we had bus depots now that's you know or the uh, pathfinder uh, nuclear power plant out here atomic they called it atomic power plant then but things like that that are in the you know 50 60 years ago because uh, things after that that are a lot more easily available 
but I pick up some of the odd stuff because or or uh, photos of the um, uh, what you would call what would you call it the bus uh, post offices. You know, they had there were buses that went between Sioux Falls and Rapid City and highway highway post office, and the the bus would be running down the road and the people would be in the bus and they'd be sorting mail and and canceling it and then they'd go and make the return trip or they'd stop at various towns and drop off stuff for Chamberlain or Mitchell or or uh, Murdo on the way and pick up and so it would be going both ways I had a uh, yeah the buses the railroads had cars that did that too uh, talking about Kobe Kobe clocks what is your address I'm at the corner of 21st and Duluth or 1301 South Duluth. Uh, why is the difference between 13 and 21? That's the common, uh, what would you call it, uh, screw-up of Sioux Falls. When they started the numbering system, they started at 8th Street in Phillips Avenue. So everything south of 8th Street was a 100 number. Every north of Everything north of 8th Street going up Phillips was a 100 number. So all the numbers going south. Normally in a city, if you were on 1st Street, you'd be a 100 number. The 2nd Street, a 200 number. Third, well, we, So I get people all the time saying, well, 1301 South Duluth. I'm at 13th Street, and I can't find your place. Well, wasn't Senator Pettigrew on 8th Street? Yes, yes. that was. He was, In fact, over in that immediate neighborhood, over on Grange and... Oh, I can't remember. Just east where Grange crosses the railroad track. Um, oh, they're a little bit east and south. That was where uh, uh, Fawick started his car. And and Pettigrew, had, he was up there on, on the north, built that house up on north, uh, was it North Duluth? And so, the, I mean, this is the, the old town because... Well, Sioux Falls College, let's see, Sioux Falls University, Sioux Falls College, now the University of Sioux Falls, they've been there since 1883, and um, let's see, Luther Normal, which is now Augustana, Luther Normal started in the 1890s, and then Augustana came up from Canton. And they moved in with Luther Normal, and they started, I think it was 1917. So literally, uh, Augustana, well, they, you know, Augustana's got a new, a new greeting. A.U. Yeah. A.U. Talking about Kobe, Kobe clocks, uh, 50 years you're celebrating right now. But I can remember when you used to do a lot of archaeology uh, without houses. Did that too, <clears throat> but the... Uh, there's one thing about doing that that uh, kind of it's not that it gets old not not that it gets old parentheses it's that the body gets old and the pliability the uh, mechanics of bending and stooping and and the uh, uh, limberness that I used to have as a teenager and and uh, in the twenties is now like I'm just glad things bend and don't break. Well, what you find in, you know, you go to places where there was outhouses. This was quite a few years ago. But what what did you find when you dug, dug into the uh, uh, history uh, underneath? Well, those were, it was an interesting, interesting archaeological project because <clears throat> people used the 
privy, the outhouse. The primary purpose was for the uh, uh, waste disposal of yesterday's meal. Okay. But they also used it for a place to get rid of things that were like broken dishes and broken bottles because kids would play with you know didn't want them playing with that if there were boys or girls or mixed in the family some of the old toys wound up getting deposited down in the uh, in the, the privy um, so you would find girl, girls' doll heads. You wouldn't find the doll because the body would disintegrate. And you'd also find cast iron trains. But the likelihood is that the boy got mad at his sister and threw the doll down there. And the girl got mad at her brother and threw the train down there. Uh, pa, and, pa and Ma. Uh, pa wanted to ditch the wine bottle or whiskey bottle. And when it was over... What's the best way to get rid of it so nobody would find it is drop it down. Mama would use her, uh, get rid of her bottles of materials that she drank to relieve menstrual cramps and, and other things that, that, you know, uh, or if she was into bitters. You know, sometimes they were teetotaling women. They wouldn't touch alcohol, but they had to have their bitters. What's the most unusual thing you found? Oh, a $5 gold piece. A $5 gold piece, What yes. is that worth now? Well, <clears throat> it's been around the horn a time or two. It was what they called a love token. So if somebody wanted to, how would I say, uh, impress their sweetie, they would take a $5 coin and they'd take it to the jeweler and he'd shave it as just as much as he could so that it was flat and then he'd engrave the initials of the woman or the man you know all three initials and intertwine them and that would be something they made then solder on a little chain and they'd have it on their keychain or their watch chain or or a bracelet or whatever and uh, we don't know uh, what what the background was but somebody went and they lost it and but five dollars when you think of that that's that was a week's wages mm -hmm. back in those days so you still have that i <clears throat> as with everything else if somebody has something you want that you would sooner have than what you have you're likely to trade and have to, had traded it off but we've also found uh rusty pistols mm. and uh bottles from all over the countryside dug one up that had been from uh, Indian territory which means it was before 1908 it was a brewery in Indian territory so somebody came up from Oklahoma, what's now Oklahoma and uh, when they got rid of it they dropped it down the privy well they couldn't flush it down the, you know, back then no 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 well the clock shop you have, what's the most unusual clock that you've uh, had in the last 50 years? There was a, he was the, um, let's see, a county agent for, what was it, uh, west of, it was west of here. I think he was in Salem. And he had a clock that had been in the family, had been in the family. The clockmaker 
built the clock. No, we don't know when he built it, but he died in 1769. So you know the clock has to be at least that old. And there were some things that wore that were worn and needed to be fixed. So he, uh, I can't remember his name though, but he had the clock. The oldest son always got it. Well, you can imagine, and this would have been, even if it was back in 1970, that would have made it 200 years old. And so it had been oldest son to oldest son to oldest son. So you know it's been about five generations or six generations, and he gave it to his old his oldest son. And so the clock wound up in Anchorage, Alaska. That's where the son lived. And we got to fix that and got to make it work. And, and that's, you know, certain gratification that you, uh, well, 1770 to 1870 to 1970, that's 250 years old. About as old as the country. Yes, older than me. Well, time's running fast here. Uh, Bob, when you were city commission. County, county commission. County commission. Yeah, we were the we were the, the best ones. I mean, city commission is one thing. County commission is where the action was. What's the biggest thing that happened when you were county commission? Oh, gee. <clears throat> the two things that I probably remember most is we dredged Wall Lake. And I was the liaison from the county for three years on that project. And then I had the responsibility of being a chairperson on the, uh, on the aquifer protection. And we enacted an, an, enacted an ordinance that covered uh, bluff to bluff on the Sioux River rather than just, it, at that time, the thing in vogue was wellheads. In other words, you couldn't do certain things within 50 feet of a well or 100 feet of a well or 150 feet. We just blanketed the whole aquifer. The most disappointing thing was and, uh, uh, when they had the oil spill up here by what is called Sorum's Corner or the Renner Corner. It was like four, that was a major spill even today. It was about 400,000 gallons, if I remember right, of product. And they had to clean it up and fix it up and so we went after the pipeline company and there were let's see there was the county commission there was um, Minnehaha Conservation District East Dakota Water Development District um, I can't remember there was other, several others in, and the city of Sioux Falls had a rep there and, and what we were pushing for was double walled pipe across the aquifer from west to east or wherever the the pipeline company had a pipe they would double wall it so the if the inside pipe which carried the product would burst it wouldn't go into the into the aquifer into the the field that we were pumping water from and we could see we had some input from Holger Anderson's station up on North Cliff that was a leak, and Hayward was a leak, and Dan Dugan was a leak. All of these had leaked into our aquifer, so we were trying to protect it. And then our mayor, uh, Gary Hansen, he settled with the uh, pipeline company, and um, we lost the ability to get that accomplished. Well, if somebody walks into your clock store today, what do they see? What do they see? Too much stuff. Some second-hand stuff? Well, nothing. 
most of the things would be in the antique or collectible line. So lots of clocks. Uh, I have some souvenir items, you know, from Corson or, or um, other places around the immediate area. Uh, photography, I've got old images in boxes somewhere. I've got uh, um, parts, parts and parts of clocks. So it's a, if people remember what aren't used to be like over on East uh, 10th Street, you know, where you had car bodies and motors and all kinds of things like that. I guess you would call me the arts of clocks. Bob Kobe celebrating 50 years at that place. Um, what time of the week can people find you open? Well, I'm trying to, <clears throat> uh, how would I say, back away a little bit and get more into the retired. So Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursday afternoons. And uh, then I use other times to do service calls on the grandfather clocks and other things of that nature and, and uh, trying to lighten the load. And I have other things in my life I need to do now and working on a couple books that need attention. So, Well, our time is out. And 50 years at a clock shop, Bob Kobe, and the history that you've had, I want to thank you for being with us on Forum. Thank you much. It's been a, it's been a fun 50 years.